KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. The geopolitical risk firm, the Eurasia Group, is out with its annual top risks list, a look at the top global risks on the table for the new year. We wanted to dig into the list, so we spoke with Ali Wine. He is a senior analyst for the Eurasia Group's global macro practice. So to start, for people that aren't familiar, the Eurasia Group's top risks. You guys do this every year. These are global risks. Kind of tell me how the sausage is made. How is this list put together? Sure. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a real, real pleasure to be with you. So in terms of how the sausage gets made, we have we have a very vigorous discussion internally. We bring together analysts and researchers from across the firm, and we have a number of brainstorming sessions. And we have three, I would say three core criteria that we consider when, uh, when mulling potential top risks for the coming year. Uh, the first is, does the risk that you're presenting, does the risk that you're articulating uh, is it your base case? And that is to say, you sometimes will see compilations of potential risks that, that present kind of tail risks. And, and those are interesting. Those are important to consider. Uh, but we think that it's important for our purposes to present what we think is actually likely to materialize. So criteria number one is, in thinking about potential risk, is it your base case? Is it something you think is going to materialize? Um, number two, uh, it has to. we have to answer the important, the all-important so what question. And the so what in this case is, so what for markets? So what for investors? So what for corporates? And so, again, if we are contemplating a given geopolitical risk, if we feel that it's our base case, it's going to materialize in the coming year, but it's not really going to move sort of markets that much, it's not something that we would give a strong consideration for, for our list. And then the third criterion, I, I think I actually just mentioned in, in, in discussing the second criterion, and that is um, it needs to be a, a geopolitical risk that we think is going to manifest concretely and, and, and acutely uh, in the year under consideration. And so um, as an example, if we feel that there is a very significant horizon coming down the pike, maybe three years hence, five years hence, we should certainly be thinking about it for future top risk reports, but it's not something that we would include. So again, we have a number of internal brainstorming sessions. We bring together analysts and researchers from across the firm, from all of our, our, our regional practices, all of our functional practices. We have a very vigorous internal discussion and debate. And then we really, again, we, 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 we stress those three criteria. So is it our base case? Uh, is it going to move uh, investors, corporates, markets? Um, and is it going to manifest in the given year? And we go from there. So let's talk about the list at the top. You guys have uh, about COVID, no zero COVID. Kind of dig into this. And I know a lot of the focus here is on China because they're trying to eliminate and in the real world, I don't know how realistic that is, but kind of dig in what the risk is here and how we could kind of ripple out. Yeah. And so what we basically do is we begin by, we begin by talking about China, but the reason that we put this risk as our number one risk is because of the global reverberations. Um, anything that happens in China, just, just by virtue of China's sheer scale, it has 1.4 billion people. So the world's largest population, it presides over the world's second largest economy. And so anything that happens in China, almost by definition, has global, is going to have global reverberations for, for geopolitics and for geoeconomics. And so in contemplating uh, or in writing up this top risk, what we said to ourselves was, goodness, you know, China has adopted this, this zero COVID uh, containment strategy for the better part of the past two years. Uh, and I think that I, I think most observers would agree that it has been 
pretty successful thus far in employing that strategy in terms of containing the number of uh, infections, the number of hospitalizations, the number of fatalities. There are some you know, suspicions about the veracity of official government data, but I think it's fair to say that if if China's figures were vastly understated, I, I think it would be difficult for them to, to keep a lid on that information. Uh, and so our concern was, well, now you have, uh, you have first of all, uh, the population of 1.4 billion. You have a, a variant that is vastly more transmissible than its predecessor, uh, the Delta variant. Well, I shouldn't even say the, the predecessor because Delta is still in the mix of I know what variants you meant, that are infecting people. So you have a, a far more transmissible variant. You have the world's largest population. And the vaccines that the China has been rolling out, they just aren't, they aren't nearly as efficacious as those that are being put out by Pfizer, uh, Moderna, and others. And so when you have that combination, uh, the size of the population, the, the, the relative lack of uh, efficaciousness of the vaccines, and it, for those reasons, we think uh, this zero containment strategy is going to be much more difficult to sustain. Uh, however, and this is, this is where sort of the politics comes in, uh, Xi Jinping and his top advisors, we think, are very unlikely to recalibrate this zero COVID containment strategy because they really have staked their reputation uh, in many ways on, on the strategy. They've staked their reputation for competence. They have touted their, their containment model, and they basically have said to the rest of the world, look, you know, look, at, look at case counts in, in many other uh, advanced economies, but in China, look at how low our, our case count is. And I think that the concern is in China that if they were to relax uh, even uh, slightly, if they were to relax at zero COVID containment you know, policy, given that their vaccines aren't nearly as efficacious, uh, I think that there's a concern that they could have mass outbreaks. Uh, and I think that they are willing to, um, they are willing to sort of take a slight economic hit if they feel that it, they can continue with the zero COVID containment strategy, keep the, the pandemic uh, under, under check. But what are the implications globally? Um, so the implications are given that China, China remains the world's manufacturing hub, it occupies such a commanding position in global supply chains. Um, if China is, is cracking down even more to contain the pandemic, then the extant supply chain disruptions that we've seen over the past two years, um, they're only going to get worse. And so what we, what we worry about is a linkage between uh, an enforcement of what we think is an increasingly untenable containment, a COVID containment strategy in China, and the extent to which that continuation will exacerbate supply chain disruptions. So that's one big implication. Another implication is, uh, you know, we've heard a lot about this notion of a kind of a K-shaped recovery or a two-tier recovery, both in health terms and economic terms, between many countries in the developed world and countries in the developing world. We think that that, um, and we think that that divergence is going to grow as well. Because I would say that prior to prior to the Omicron, um, the Omicron variant, there was I think much more of an active discussion among advanced industrial democracies. Hey, you know, we're we're finally finally bending the curve. We're you know we're we're containing Delta. So now let's have much more of an active discussion about exporting surplus doses. But now, if you have a much more transmissible variant, many more people getting sick, even people who meet the definition of being fully vaccinated. Now all of a sudden, that discussion uh, is. Is much more more dubious, and a lot of advanced industrial democracies are saying, "Well, wait a minute, we need to we need to hold on to these allegedly surplus doses." What it means is that those surplus doses that would have gone, that would have been exported to developing countries where inoculation rates remain very low, developing many developing countries aren't going to get those, and so you're going to have uh, previously surplus doses that are now being used to to deal with the Omicron variant in, in much of the developed world, while many developing countries struggle to inoculate their populations. Obviously, if you're struggling to inoculate your population, it means people can't go to work, your economy is going to suffer. 
so we basically talk about sort of beginning beginning with China, but then but then zooming out, we basically talk about a confluence of phenomena that we think are, are going to, to grow more entrenched. Um, we think that uh, inflation, which is something I hadn't mentioned, uh, but when you have supply chain disruptions, supply chain disruptions, they exacerbate inflationary pressures. And so when you have more entrenched inflationary pressures, more of an entrenched uh, divergence between the fates of developed economies and, and developing economies, both in health terms and economic terms, uh, that type of co- that type of combination, particularly two years into such a grueling pandemic, um, is going to exacerbate. Um, it's going to heighten a lot of nationalistic sentiment. It's going to heighten a lot of populistic sentiment. People are tired. People are frustrated. People they want to get on with their lives, but there is a feeling. There's a tremendous feeling of uncertainty. There is a feeling of frustration. A feeling of disillusionment with governments. And so, what this top risk does, it really. It really brings together, I think, a number of, of big trends. It, bring, it brings together trends in health. It brings together trends in economics. It brings together trends um, in politics. And I don't, I don't want to say that it. I don't want to say that it, it uh, wraps a neat bow around them because it's 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 a very uh, it's a very sobering bow. But it really brings together a lot of these big picture trends, and and that's why we felt that it merited the number one spot. Risk number two, techno polar world. And uh, am I making it too simple that the Wild West that is the online world, the digital world, becomes even more Wild Westier? No, that's 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 again. I mean, you're. I I wish I had actually had. I wish I had had a preparatory conversation with <laughs> with you beforehand because you do you, the way that you distill the risk. I need to actually distill the risk the way that you do it. It's much more effective. Um, that that's the upshot of it. And the um, so this was in twenty. It was in 20, I believe it was in 2011, if, if memory serves. Um, uh, Ian Bremmer and David Gordon, uh, they co-authored an, or, an article in Foreign Policy Magazine in which they introduced an, or they coined the term G-Zero World. Uh, and G-Zero World has, has become one of the core uh, analytical constructs that underpins a lot of Eurasia Group's work. And, and Ian and David in this article, they said that a G-Zero World, um, it, it refers to a world or, or a, a condition of geopolitics in which no one, con- no single country or coalition of countries is capable of offering sustained leadership on the pressing challenges of the time. So, whether it is uh, wh- whether it is providing macroeconomic stability, whether it's mitigating climate change, whether it's you know taking action on mobilizing collective action and leadership on 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 any number of other transnational challenges. Um, what this risk does with the technopolar world, and it actually so Ian again he he elaborates on on this notion in a recent uh, essay for Foreign Affairs is take Take this G zero notion, uh, as we've been thinking about it in the context of the physical world, the realm of nation states, and now apply it to the digital world. And I think it's really it's it's difficult to overstate how how profound and how significant the the technological you know, revolution underway is. Um, you know, when you think about you know nation states for the better part of the past, I think four hundred years or so. So ever since the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, you know, nation states have been the core, uh, the core building blocks of the international system, and they still are. I don't want to, I, I don't want to, you know, give the impression that they aren't. Um, but they increasingly are, they increasingly are contending with uh, major technological companies that have global reach, that in many ways are outstripping the ability of governments to regulate them. And so, uh, whether you look at the United States, you look at the European Union, you look at China. Governments right now are, uh, they're talking a lot and they're, they're talking a lot and they're, engaged, they're taking a number of measures to try to rein in big technology companies. But as we say in this risk, um, we just think that the gap between 
the ability of major technology companies to extend their reach and the ability of governments to keep pace with regulation, we think that that gap is going to continue growing. Um, and in the digital world, um, you know, many of the major, many of the major players, um, they, they're interested in innovating, they're interested in developing, you know, new apps, new platforms, they aren't really as interested in the governance aspect. Uh, and I think that there's a feeling that governance perhaps is tantamount to, to regulation or sort of, you know, supervision, which is, you know, supervision, which is unwanted. And so what we see is um, a select number of technology companies affecting billions of people the way that we, and I think that we've seen their reach, you know, grow that much more during the pandemic. But think about the impact that a small number of companies have uh, on billions of people, the way that we, uh, the way that we educate ourselves, the way that we work, the way that we socialize with one another, the way that we purchase products. I mean, the, really the way that we, the, the way that we live our day-to-day -day lives. And we, you know, it's, it's unprecedented when you have a few companies that are able to affect the day-to-day -day routines of billions of people in the way that they do, you know, in increasingly, you know, beyond the reach of governments. And so the concern that we express in, in this technopolar world risk is one, uh, if this, if this risk materializes and we think that it will, and if it grows more entrenched, we're going to see more, uh, more sort of a butting of heads between governments uh, and technology companies. Governments feel that certain tech companies are getting too big for their britches. Tech companies feel that they're innovating and they, they wanna be out from under the, uh, the, uh, uh, the imposition of governments. Um, and we also think that it's gonna become that much harder to develop rules of the road. It's, it's one of these sort of, sort of perennial long-standing dreams. We need to develop rules of the road for the digital world. We need to develop rules of the road to govern cyberspace, to govern data flows, to govern artificial intelligence. And we think that it's going to become harder and harder to do so. Uh, well, what are the implications? Um, a lot of the concerns that we have about uh, invasions of privacy, the, the, the uh, propagation of disinformation, uh, the uh, just, again, the inability to govern this increasingly fundamental aspect of lives for billions of people we think that a lot of those risks are only going to get worse. And so that's why we put that risk at number two. Number three, and it's fascinating that the first two are kind of the these global general ideas that touch everywhere. And then number three, it's the U.S. midterm elections. Like we get right to the heart of what's facing us in the U.S. And reading this, it's concern after what we saw in 2020 with the insurrection somewhat for 2022, but how 2022 could set the table for uh, a lot of problems in the presidential election of 2024. It, I remember actually, uh, well, we all do. I mean, and actually we're, we're having this conversation just a, you know, just a couple of weeks after the anniversary of January 6th, uh, 2021. Um, when you know, the United States, it, it is a world's preeminent power. Yes. It, it's, it's not as influential as it was, you know, at the turn of the 21st century, but it is still the world's, uh, you know, lone superpower. And just a few minutes ago, I said that, you know, China, by virtue of its scale and by virtue of its centrality in the global economy, you know, anything that happens in China has global reverberations. Similarly, anything that happens in the world's lone superpower is going to have global reverberations. And it's quite, a, it's, it's, it's quite concerning. I mean, when you think about what is more sacrosanct to a democracy? What is more of a cornerstone to to a democracy than than the safe the safe carrying out of elections? It's 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 I, to to call elections a cornerstone again. It it's sort of an understatement. Um, elections are 
elections, the, the safe passage of power, the peaceful transition of power, the, the acceptance of transitions from one administration to the next. I mean, those are, those are pillars of, of, any, uh, of any country that claims to, to harbor, that claims to, to practice democratic governance. And what's concerning is we feel that increasingly, um, whether we talk about presidential elections with an eye to 2024, or whether we talk about midterm elections, Regardless of which way the elections go, and I, and I think that this point is very important, and it, it's not a partisan point. It's really not a partisan point. Um, we are concerned that regardless of what happens in the midterm elections, you're going to have tens of millions of Americans who feel that those elections were illegitimate. Uh, turning to the 2024 election, perhaps an even greater, you know, obviously more, you know, more individuals vote in the presidential election than vote in midterm elections. And there's a concern that whoever wins in 2024, uh, we don't even need to know we don't even need to know, you know, who's going to be running on the Republican side and who's going to be running on the Democratic side. Whoever, whoever the the ultimate nominees are and whatever the ultimate outcome is, the result is going to be shrouded in illegitimacy. Uh, Democrats, you know, Democrats will accuse Republicans of engaging in voter suppression. Republicans will accuse Democrats of you know, forging votes or faking votes. And when you have the cornerstone or one of the most important you know, pillars of your democracy that is now continually from here on out, uh, occurring under a cloud of suspicion, um, you have to worry a lot about the integrity of democratic institutions, about the ability of the American polity to, to you know, to you know, really to endure. And it's quite sobering that um, you know Americans of different ideological persuasions increasingly regard one another not as fellow travelers, but as as strange interlopers, if not mortal adversaries. And so what are the implications? Uh, well, the implications, I, I think that the domestic U.S. implications are, are, are pretty clear. It means that uh, if you think polarization is bad now, it's only going to get worse in the aftermath of the midterms. Um, it's going to make uh, it that if you think that it's difficult for, for the United States to govern now and to enact legislation now to make you know, critical investments in its uh, you know, socioeconomic edifice. I think that those investments are only going to get harder to make in a in a in a time of heightened polarization, and and that and that uh, you know that atmosphere domestically, it also has foreign policy implications. Um, you know, President Biden, you know, he you know he often remarks, and and he's and he's made a I think a very very sobering observation on on a number of occasions, uh, and I'm I'm roughly paraphrasing him, but uh, but the president has remarked on a number of occasions that. You know, when he when he meets with his counterparts uh, in in European allies and partners and Asian allies and partners, but when he meets his counterparts and he he says, when I tell them that America is back, they often reply, "For how long?" And many allies and partners worry that the vagaries of America's domestic politics imply, consequently, uh, significant oscillations and unpredictability in U.S. foreign policy. And so there's an intimate relationship between the ability of America to sustain some semblance of national cohesion and coherent purpose domestically and its ability to be seen as a stable power in international affairs. Um, and one of the concerns that we have, uh, and then I'll stop, uh, many allies and partners, so leave aside competitors, leave aside adversaries of the United States, um, even many of America's, you know, well-wishers, you know, near and dear, you know, allies and partners, you know, many of them, you know, when they, when they meet with you know, officials in Washington, they say, we are, you know, we're happy you're back. We are happy that you are, excuse me, that you are re-engaging with international institutions, that you are participating vigorously again in multilateral fora, but we don't know what, we don't know what's going to happen in 2024. We don't know what's going to happen in 2028. And so we have to hedge. We have to start 
we have to start operating under the assumption of more unpredictability coming from the United States. So we've gone over the top three. The list is 10 deep. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go through all of them. Give me another risk that maybe, regardless of where it falls on the list, but that resonates with you is one that is kind of high on your list of of something that uh, should be of global concern and will probably rear its head. Yeah, well, let me... Well, I'll talk about Russia. I mean, we, you know, we we put Russia as as risk number. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Russia and Iran, uh, and we put them uh, a little bit further down the list. You know, with Russia, uh, I think that there there's still hope for. I, I'm a, I'm a congenital optimist, and hope you know, hope springs eternal. Um, I mean, based on based on the conversations, at least based on the readouts we're getting of the conversations between. Uh, Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken and his counterpart Sergey Lavrov. It seems that there is still some some narrow window for for a diplomatic resolution. Um, but I mean, I, I think that you know we all have been you know we all are growing increasingly concerned. So we put out so every year we put out this top risk report at the, uh, at the you know right when we come back from New Year's break, so very early in January, and just you know developments just of the past few weeks, roughly two and a half weeks, you know, the the situation has become more concerning. If you look at if you look at Russian, uh, you know, troop deployments, you know, on on the border with Ukraine, um, if you look at the hardening of positions, uh, both the hardening of positions, you know, coming from NATO and from from the West, and the hardening of positions in Russia, it's clear that there are certain, uh, there are just certain core, arguably, ir, you know, intractable divergences in in policy positions, and so there, and I think that what Russia is also demonstrating is. You know, right now, the, the, you know, we talked actually at the beginning, we talked about China um, and for obvious reasons, you know, China is very much um, the center of global attention. We have the, the, the Beijing Olympics, uh, uh, Winter Olympics coming up. U.S.-China competition looms ever larger in, in the world's consciousness. Uh, I think that what Russia is demonstrating, though, is that even though, you know, Russia doesn't have, you know, Russia's economy is, is far outstripped by that of, of China. Russia, you know, it certainly doesn't have in the aggregate the kind of national power that China does. Uh, but Russia is reminding us right now that it is an enduring power. Uh, it, it can assert itself. It can, make its, it can make its presence felt. It can make its disruptions felt. And so one of the concerns is, again, hope springs eternal. Let's, let's hope that there is potentially a diplomatic resolution. But you have to ask yourself the what if question. And um, you know, certainly a lot of if you a lot of investors are spooked uh, right now by the possibility of a confrontation between Russia, NATO, Russia. What if they basically end up agreeing to disagree and there isn't a plan B for for diplomatic resolution? You know what happens next um, if Russia were to uh, if Russia were to launch another attack? Uh, what form would it take? So obviously, in the in the interval between 2014 when Russia invaded and the next Crimea in 2022. It's true that Ukraine's armed forces have grown more sophisticated, but so have Russia's. Um, and so what would happen? What kind of form or forms would an attack take? Um, how would the United States and the West more broadly respond? Um, and, and right now, if you look at the conversations that are going on, there's a very active conversation going on in the West about potentially um, restricting pretty significantly Russia's access to the global financial system. Um, so there's a discussion about how extensive uh, that cutting off would be. Um, what would happen to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? So, so certainly this is a risk. You know, we, we put it at number five this year, but I think that just on, on account of developments, just in the, in the two, two and a half weeks or so since we put out the report, uh, it demonstrates that uh, 
you know, it, it, it definitely deserves to be on the list. I think we all are going to be sort of waiting with bated breath to see developments unfold over the, uh, the coming weeks, but it's, it's caused for significant concern. And you mentioned Iran too. Was there something separate with Iran? Well, there, there's sort of a similar, I guess I would say sort of a similar consideration at work, which is kind of what if. So I think that you know, if we had been having this conversation a year ago, I think that a year ago there was considerably more. Uh, I think there was. I think that there was considerably more optimism that we might be able to resuscitate the the Iran nuclear deal or the the JCPOA. And again, hope springs eternal. Uh, there are some. There are some signs that potentially, uh, depending on how negotiations go, maybe some version. Excuse me, if the deal could be revived, but I, I think that the mood is considerably bleaker uh, than it was. A year ago, and so again, there's that "what if" question. If, um, if the negotiating parties you know, reach an impasse and decide that the JCPOA can't be revived, you know, how do they proceed? Um, what does America's plan be? What does Israel's plan be? Um, how do China and Russia, you know, you know, figure into this situation? But you know, if the JCPOA uh, or if these negotiations over reviving the JCPOA stall and or fail. You have to consider the prospect for some kind of military confrontation in the Middle East, and and certainly any mili- military confrontation in the Middle East would immediately have significant effects on uh, the stable flow of of energy, oil prices, um, and I think that it would again um, it, it shows sort of this this nexus, and this is sort of what Eurasia Group really tries to do is to think about the nexus between geopolitics and geoeconomics. What's happening in world affairs? How does it affect markets? And certainly. We see that we see the security concerns vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine are weighing on investors, uh, and we also are seeing that security concerns involving a potential collapse of the JCPOA are also weighing on investors. And now I want to talk. You also have another aspect of the report that's called the red herrings, which, as the name would imply, things that are in many circles talked about as big risks, but you guys are kind of saying, "Hey, pump the brakes on this." And at the top of the list of that is the idea of a U.S.-China Cold War. Kind of dig into that for me. Sure. So, uh, and I should say, you know, since we list it as a herring, I, I want to, you know, I, I hasten to note, it's perfectly understandable why, you know, why the analogy is, is uh, I shouldn't say newly fashionable, but I would say why it's increasingly fashionable. So the United States and China, they are ideologically opposed in many ways, ideologically, some might even say antithetical. Uh, they are both the United States is the world's lone superpower. China is its principal you know, challenger. Uh, their competition is systemic. It's multifaceted. Uh, and so we could enumerate you know, many, many reasons. And, and it's also you know, the Cold War. It was a it was a protracted competition. It, it, it consumed the better part of half a century. And I think that both Washington and Beijing similarly are girding themselves for a long term confrontation. Uh, but why? So recognizing why at least at first blush, the analogy you know makes sense. You know why we think that the United States and China are are not are, are not primed for a Cold War. Uh, you know one is the residual degree of economic interdependence. Uh, during the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union deliberately uh, insulated their economies from one another because they were concerned that economic entanglement. Uh, they were concerned that uh, economic entanglement would basically allow each other would allow their competitors to broach each other's sphere of influence. Uh, the United States wanted to guard its sphere of influence, did of the Soviet Union, and they didn't want economic independence to, to throw a wrench in the mix. Um, the, the United States and China, it is true that in certain areas, they are selectively dis- 
disentangling uh, from one another. And there obviously are concerns about the, the extent of trade interdependence, the extent of technological interdependence. But even, I, but even for all the talk about, and, and some limited action in the way of selective disentanglement, see the two countries, they remain substantially intertwined. I think it's actually quite striking that this year, uh, we don't have the final, final numbers yet. Uh, but if you look at just the first 11 months alone of uh, 2021, already a two-way trade in goods between the United States and China for the first 11 months of 2021 already exceeds uh, total trade between the United States and China in goods in 2020 and in 2019. Um, and so if, if it were true that the United States and China economically were really pulling apart, we might not expect, we wouldn't expect to see that. So uh, there's still a very high volume of trade. Um, judging by many metrics, uh, the, the degree of sort of financial interdependence between the two countries is also quite high. Uh, Wall Street is, is it's doubling down on China and it's you know, leaving aside whether you, you know, whether you agree with Wall Street's decision or disagree, but it's objectively Wall Street is, is making a longer term bet on China. So, so one factor is the degree of interdependence. Um, two, the, the range of shared national interests. Uh, the United States and China, the United States and the Soviet Union, they were largely bound together by the imperative of avoiding mutually assured destruction. Today, the United States and China, their shared agenda is far more uh, encompassing. They have to think not only about uh, mitigating the risk from nuclear weapons and now hypersonic weapons, uh, they have to think about mitigating climate change. They have to think about obviously mitigating the pandemic disease. So the agenda of shared national interests is much larger um, I also just think that middle countries, I, I don't want to, middle countries, middle powers, it sounds like such a derogatory term, but basically countries other than the United States or China, um, but they, um, they are going to maintain, uh, they are going to maintain a very complex set of relationships with both the United States and China. Uh, it's, it's rare that you're going to find a country that says, you know, we are not going to deal with the United States or we are not going to deal with China. So you have many countries, uh, even those that have grave apprehensions of China, that nonetheless are maintaining strong economic ties. Um, and so we, we basically enumerate a number of those uh, factors, why we think that U.S.-China tensions today are not sort of neatly analogous to those that existed between Washington and Moscow during the Cold War. Now, we're not sanguine. Uh, and as I said, I think that both Washington and Beijing are girding themselves for a long-term uh, multifaceted competition um, but I think, oh, and then one last point, then I'll stop. Um, at, the, at the outset of the Cold War, obviously, neither the United States nor the Soviet Union uh, uh, knew how it was going to evolve. Neither of them could, uh, neither of them knew uh, how it would end or even if it would end. Um, and similarly, you know, today, um, it could be the case, theoretically, that uh, historians a generation or two hence write about how the U.S.-China competition similarly concluded in dramatic fashion. But sitting where we are, you know, talking as we are today, um, it seems more likely that the United States and China are going to have to achieve and sustain a competitive coexistence rather than sort of eyeing one another's disintegration. I, I think that the United States, it, for all of its sort of internal and external frailties, it has a number of very significant, in some cases, unique competitive advantages that I think will ensure its resilience. Uh, and China, I think for all of its internal and external frailties, it has a number of competitive advantages in some cases unique that I think will also help it to be resilient. Um, and so what I, I think I envision is that um, I think it's unlikely that we are going to witness sort of a Soviet style collapse of the Chinese Communist Party um, or a, a spectacular uh, sort of bursting of the Chinese economic bubble. Uh, bubble. I think China will, will, uh, you know, will endure, the United States will endure. And 
So one reason that it's problematic then to think about U.S.-China tensions in terms of a Cold War is if you accept this hypothesis that each country is going to prove an enduring power, when you think about the Cold War, so when you use a phrase new Cold War, uh, intentionally or not, you're putting yourself in the frame of mind of a confrontation that reached a decisive end. On December 16th, 1991, the Soviet Union formally dissolved. Um, and so is the U.S.-China conflict or competition going to end decisively? One can't disclaim a decisive resolution, but I think that sitting here today, I, I think that it's unlikely. So for all those reasons, um, we basically say, yes, systemic long-term competition, not a Cold War. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.